0: Would you please introduce yourself.
1: My name is Darren Lapomi. I am a professor of nanoengineering and chemical engineering at the University of California, San Diego.
0: Thanks for joining us. Um, I would like to go back when you were a child. Uh, do you have any memory that you, you know, make you interested in science or and strike your imagination for where we are today?
1: Sure, I was always interested in science. Um, I my uh, my parents were not scientists. they're they're um, they are not scientists. My father's a tailor, and my mother is a librarian, but we had a healthy interest in science growing up. Um, I was very interested in Star Wars and Star Trek like a lot of nerdy kids were. And I had a lot of science toys, uh, like, capsella and the which was sort of a, a robotics kit uh, that had gears and impellers and uh, motors of various types and uh and legos particularly the technic set although i think i got one of those sets well before i was i was sort of skilled enough to know how to use it
0: mm-hmm. interesting so if i ask you what is the first robot to build because i th- I, I know you, you work now shifting a little bit between materials science and uh, soft systems so if you can tell us do you have any memories about first intelligent soft robot you built?
1: Well, I can't claim ever to have built an intelligent soft robot. The first robot that I ever built was a piece of um, a, a character that looked a bit like a french fry. He was a, a plywood character that I made when I was about five years old. Uh, I drew a face uh, on it with a Crayola marker. And I took a lamp cord and spliced the ends of the, the wire off and then just taped the, the wires to the back of the plywood head expecting that it would actuate. And my mother told me, uh, you know, that's a great invention, but please don't ever, ever plug that in.
0: so. I'm curious to ask you uh, what is the most beautiful and profound equation that inspires you in your work?
1: So there's a an elegant scientific idea, uh, namely the conservation of energy that comes in a number of forms, you could think about the first law of thermodynamics, for example. And I think that 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 the conservation of energy on the molecular level uh, when you're thinking about macroscopic systems is more profound than i think students and uh, and beginning researchers tend to give it credit for so a lot of times we think about a conservation of energy in terms of of, uh, photophysical processes, or 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 balls on a on a pool table, uh, but it has profound consequences when we're talking about manifold ways of dissipation of energy. For example, friction and particularly adhesion and viscoelastic adhesion. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and how to design uh, materials that dissipate mechanical energy in uh, in ways of uh, that uh, that do not cause a large-scale fracture of the material and in my case retention of of mechanical function as well so i think that uh, energy uh dissipation gets a bad rap because friction is you know the 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 sink for so much uh so much power in industrial processes but if you can design dissipative pathways intelligently uh, you can get a lot of, of functionality out of them
0: right. So if I ask you how you would define soft robotics from your experience, what could be the best definition? Is it fully soft from as a material science? Do you think that should be or how it looks like for you?
1: So my connection to soft robotics is a bit more peripheral than I think a few of the other guests that you've had. Uh, I did my PhD with George Whitesides sort of when soft robotics was hitting the uh, uh, I don't know if you can call it uh, mainstream yet, but but it was becoming a greater prominence at the time when I was in the group. Um, and then when I started my independent career, I moved into stretchable, uh, compliant sensors, and particularly the materials of which those are made. And now I'm quite interested in haptics, which have a number of overlapping properties. Uh, uh, concerns as the field of soft robotics. I would say what soft robotics means to me uh, is the use of a of a polymeric material, although perhaps not exclusively a polymeric material, uh to make some type of of intelligent actuating system but the key point of soft robotics is the materials control the use of materials to sort of offload some of the function that you would normally that the onboard electronics would normally carry in a hard robot you you offload those those functions to the um to the materials, so that uh, you have a, a more elegant solution for certain types of engineering challenges.
0: Mm. And if I ask you, what do you think? Maybe the most important uh, question we have to consider, or maybe as a community we have to focus on, and we are not really focusing right in right moment. Something we have to shift to focus on.
1: I think a connection to the materials chemistry is an area that is ripe for innovation in soft robotics. I think that rightly so the soft robotics community has been dominated by, um, electrical and mechanical and computer engineering, which is, uh, which is fantastic. I think that's, uh, that's where the, the core of the innovation has to be, but in its in insofar as soft robotics is the marriage of traditional robotics with material science I think materials chemistry and design of materials that for example uh, exhibit more reproducible um, stress-strain behavior, have less creep, more linear uh, a longer linear elastic regime um, and uh, and Uh, less loss in the material is a uh, those are some sort of mechanics challenges and then there is the sort of futuristic uh, stimuli responsive types of materials that, that that really are intelligent that really do need a chemical input and some innovation in synthetic polymer chemistry
0: I think I'm curious to ask you this question since you say sometimes we don't get reproducible result for smart material. And there's many examples like any conductive polymer. It has low performance, low response time, and low force. And it's, it's indeed hard to replicate a design or a model. And sometimes you give up about this material and it ends up there's no realistic application behind it. Just to show up in a paper, but in real world, we can't use them yet. So do you think it yep. comes down yep. to What is the problem? It's just because maybe modeling is not sufficient enough. Maybe the fabrication, we don't know, but there's a gap here. How we would see this gap?
1: I think you've identified a very important problem that in the field of mechanically compliant electronic materials, There are a few ways to go about it. You have stretchable composites that might include some conductive polymer and carbon nanotubes or maybe some silver flakes, and they end up in a a paper, and then the next week you find another very similar paper with a very similar recipe. Uh, and there may even be some cyclic loading data or some long-term uh, degradation in conductivity uh, that maybe are, is not so favorable for a, a realistic use case, which is why I think we tend to go back to the same tried-and-true materials um, that is metallic Um, metallic traces using serpentine or fractal layouts combined with silicone elastomers that still are not actually the ideal materials uh, because of viscoelastic effects so this is an area that that does demand uh more attention i'm not really sure that it's um that that uh, continuum scale modeling is going to be the best approach to increase the reproducibility on the material side, um, but it strikes me that uh, that a, a chemically focused a- approach, as opposed to a pure compositing approach, um, is going to be uh, part of the the winning solution.
0: Yeah. So, if I ask you, do you think um, the future of soft robotics in general? Do you think we have to? shift on designing smart materials able to compute their energy and force do you think that's something we have to focus on
1: i think that the ability to design a material that on the on the scale of the material or perhaps the uh, the 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 microstructure or the the millimeter scale structure that can sense its environment and then uh, provide a signal to the material to adapt to its surroundings is is quite a pie in the sky uh, goal we on the material side are quite far away from from a material that embodies such uh, intelligence i would say that for the time being it's uh it's okay to outsource the uh, much of the the information gathering capabilities to uh, onboard electronics Um, but certainly that's a goal of stimuli responsive and so called smart materials but in terms of of materials that actually embody some kind of intelligence so the ability to gather and apply knowledge and work towards a goal in its environment and uh, perhaps have an underlying set of, of values uh, that that undergird its its goal seeking behavior. Uh, that's quite far uh, away, uh, but in principle, I I don't see why it uh, it can't be done in some some form.
0: And maybe this question for a student as well. When you design your soft material. What is the most challenging part of designing when you reflect on the performance and make characterization, how you can identify what is the significant, maybe parameter affecting in the behavior and you have to change design at the material science, too. how you can do that?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question. The the biggest challenge as a materials chemist is actually the chemistry and particularly. Um, in an engineering lab where we uh, we employ a, a number of, of chemistry oriented grad students and, and postdocs um, we really have to get the design of the material right on you know the first second or third uh, try and I think what ends up happening is the we are we are a bit limited in the um, in, in the synthesis and getting reproducible syntheses one after the other. And indeed, some of the most popular uh, mass market uh, polymers that we, that we buy for soft electronic systems, there is an enormous amount of batch-to-batch variability. And these are made by professional chemists at companies that we've all heard of. And yet there's still this batch to batch variability. So I think the uh, coming up with a, with a synthetic procedure that works every time in the lab is even more of a challenge for an academic group. Um, so that's, that's a challenge that I would identify.
0: And if I ask you, what do you think the misconceptions you have witnessed related to soft robotics domain or maybe in academic world in general, misconceptions related to robotics or soft robotic material science?
1: Uh, Misconceptions in, so if we're talking about misconceptions of the broader community toward academic science and particularly academic engineering, I think the misconception is that we should function as the R&D department for uh, for the world's technology companies and i think a lot of times when i talk to uh to some scientists in industry but particularly in finance not scientists but financial people in finance they are looking for something with a much higher technology readiness level than is the mandate of academic science and even academic engineering so Even as academic engineers and material scientists, our fundamental charge is really to create knowledge and to train graduate students to become uh, To become masterful in the techniques of creating knowledge. And I th- I think that's a, a, a misconception that doesn't necessarily just apply to soft robotics, but perhaps it particularly applies to soft robotics, because a soft robot made in the lab looks kind of like a product, even though it it really might be, you know, a, a, a TRL you know one or two <laughs> as opposed to something that's ready for commercialization.
0: I think it's a serious point. Do you, how, how do you think we can? Uh, make, make this image correct, uh, how we can make sure we're not over selling what we have.
1: Back up the press we get is fantastic and we couldn't do what we do without press coverage. Uh, I think in some cases it uh, it crosses the line into hype and this isn't usually, uh, it almost is never the uh, the fault of the university press department that prepares the original uh, press release uh, but often when these press releases are picked up by the uh, by the popular media the 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 readiness level and the commercialization potential is is jacked up and and overhyped I think so uh, a little bit more uh, care in, not disclaimers, but maybe making the basic science uh, aspect or the or the scientific breakthrough that enabled the new invention uh, raise the prominence of that and and less the the flashy photograph or the you know ten to fifteen year application.
0: I think also this is very important because I would like to go since you speak about that. I would like to go since most academics sometimes. Uh, were not able to communicate with general public or people lay people and you started YouTubes as well videos and lately a podcast. so I think that's quite interesting because as a condition as well you not staying in the lab but you're trying to reach large audience and speak honestly about the problem you have. If you can tell us more why is you think about that very really important for you and do you think it was a challenging for you as a, uh, a professor as well in your career?
1: i began my uh, I've, I've always had an interest in video production uh again when when i was this also started when i was a kid uh, i had a fisher price pxl 2000 black and white video camera that could record a, a few minutes uh, because of the, the the very high data rate uh, on an audio cassette so you got a few minutes on side A, a few minutes on side B, and you could make these uh, these very low cost uh, productions. But it was it was fantastic because my family didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a VHS camcorder, uh, so I I started to make movies. I was always very interested in movies and special effects, um, and when I. Be when I got to 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 grad school and and my postdoc, you know, I was working so hard on the science that I let these other interests sort of fall by the wayside, and then in two thousand seven, I became very interested in the active learning methodology that are that is used in uh, in usually a a few different professors at a, uh, at a, in a department will use the flipped classroom or active learning method where they record a a lecture and then use the lecture, uh, the class period as sort of a variety hour where students do design challenges and so forth. And I, I wanted, I wanted to do that. And I wanted to do it for a number of reasons. One, I think it's, it's, I, I enjoyed uh, the the oratory aspect of teaching. I enjoyed uh, being able to share what I knew with an audience beyond uh, just. My my classroom, and I frankly didn't enjoy re memorizing the same lecture notes uh, every single year for the for those courses. So I recorded them all, um, and then around the same time, um, I started to uh, I, I I became the uh, the coordinator for a graduate student seminar series. And this uh, seminar series drove, uh, um, attracted maybe 80 to 100 students per, uh, per, uh, per session. And when I couldn't find, and, and, and the, the professional topics were things like job interviews and public speaking and writing and working with the press and coming up with new ideas and applying to, to graduate school or postdoc or academic positions, and I started to record those as well and when when i couldn't find a speaker for the topic i ended up giving the t- the talk myself, and those are the ones that I recorded. Uh, and then I just put those right up on YouTube, and I started to get some uh, some some hits, and uh, a few of them have a few thousand views each. Actually, my YouTube channel is uh, almost uh, up to about 600,000 views in total. Um, at this time, I have over 6,000 subscribers. And the podcast came from a, uh, basically came from, maybe uh, you could call it like fan mail, where they said, uh, you know, I I don't want to subscribe to YouTube um, and pay money to get just the audio on my phone. Can you upload them as podcasts? So then the first several episodes of the podcast are audio versions of my YouTube videos, but now I've actually started to record some original content as well. And the niche that I'd, I like to, that I'm trying to occupy is to be of service to younger academics, to uh, undergraduates, graduate students, postdocs, and early career faculty members. And the goal is to, to lift the veil on this, uh, on this somewhat obscure process of writing grants and uh, and speaking and coming up with ideas, fundable ideas, and where to submit your paper and this kind of thing. And there wasn't really anyone doing this sort of full time on the internet. So that's the niche that I, I think I'm, I'm filling. And I have a, a Twitter account, uh, which is sort of to promote this work and also to sort of point at in, in a in a uh, in a lighthearted way at the foibles of of academic science
0: that's very interesting and i'm curious to ask you do you think it's challenging uh to running both of them do, i i i can understand you it's a hobby for you since childhood so. but do you think in academia because i think there's a trend some people underestimate from the value of podcasting sometimes and see it's not scientific that's argument I don't know how he would respond to that
1: I would the, the reception professionally for me has been quite good I, I understand that in the history of scientific communication by scientists they're sometimes regarded as uh, mere popularizers and uh, people who who aren't really making innovations on you know by them by themselves I think you know you you look at, at the history of of um, uh, Carl Sagan and uh, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson now people who have sort of become professional science communicators um, and and haven't really done a lot of their own uh, uh, basic research for quite some time uh, and I think there's an idea that you have to have either one or the other, but I think I can I've I've escaped that uh, categorization for two reasons. One is that my media appearances, <laughs> my media production, is very rarely about science itself. It's about sort of periscientific scientific ideas, like how science is is done, as opposed to. What's going on in my lab right now, or what I find interesting, and in my case, the audience is other scientists as opposed to the uh, the the media or a popular audience. If a popular audience wants to tune in, that's completely fine with me because I think it's important that uh, that that uh, people outside of academia know how academic science is actually done. Um, and the other reason, the other way, I think I've I've escaped the uh, the, the 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 downside of of having a, uh, a a public face or a public voice is that the is that society is much more accepting of this kind of activity than it was. Uh, than it was in Carl Sagan's day or even quite recently. You know, it's only been a positive on my tenure and promotion files, and now I'm full professor, so I don't really have to worry about (laughs) any of that. And in fact, um, if I can show that I've had an impact beyond the boundaries of my campus, it's actually regarded as a good thing.
0: That's super interesting. And I I would like to ask you, do you think that uh... The shape of education has to be changed. In that case, since it proved that when you have this kind of activities, YouTube or podcasting, it maybe leverage the awareness of people that listening to you. Do you think that the way we education have has to be changed beyond in campus and receiving from normal classes? You 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 could imagine something beyond that, different way of education.
1: Yeah, I think that technology. Will have to play a more prominent role in education, particularly in light of the uh, ongoing COVID nineteen pandemic, um, where universities have been forced to uh, adopt uh, online learning. Um, and, however, it, it and there are some arguments where. Uh, where it, it might make sense to have the best calculus teacher in the world teach, you know, calculus 101, and then we just stop teaching that locally. I actually don't think that's a very good idea. I think it's important that a uh, that a student have a, an individual relationship, even if it's, you know, one out of 100 students. The level of uh, the... the Level of edu- the level of knowledge transfer is magnified if you have, a, is, is really enhanced by having somebody who can look a student in the eye and give them real-time feedback and also for the instructor to get real-time feedback from the students so it's a common experience for a lecturer in front of a uh, of an audience to reformulate a an explanation that uh, landed badly or that was misunderstood and then in real time come up with another example or another way of explaining the concept that that finally does land and in a video recorded lecture as as fantastic as they are particularly for uh for learning a new topic that's you know not taught or you know home repairs or learning to play a, something on the guitar you know it's it's fantastic there's no other way to do that but to learn uh to learn deep concepts about physics and chemistry and engineering and biology uh, you really do want to have a, a knowledge coach that can that can guide a student so i think it's it's complementary but i don't think that in-person instruction is going to disappear nor should it
0: so we can switch back to your research work um, related to soft robotics what's something that you're really interested in right now maybe you imagine you want to work in five years in the short term what's your plan for work related to of robotics you can do
1: Sure. So as I mentioned, my research interests are a bit peripheral to soft robotics, uh, but we do have a number of, I do have a number of overlapping interests with the community. And those are in the area of haptics. So haptics are technologies designed to interface with the sense of touch and kinesthesia and proprioception. So uh, so the sense of touch uh, is mediated by, Nerve endings in in uh, in skin, uh, but a in a in a robot that's a sensor, and in the uh, in a in a biological organism, the sense of kinesthesia that is the sense of motion and force and proprioception, which is a related concept that is uh, that refers to the knowledge of position of a of a limb in three-dimensional space. Um, or, uh, or body part in three-dimensional space those that information is generated from similar nerve endings but they're located in the musculoskeletal system as opposed to in the skin so i have two interests here one is to use material science to understand the human tactile perception so most work in the field of haptics uses static surfaces uh, uh, most haptic devices are use off-the-shelf types of actuators like vibrotactile motors, uh, electrotactile stimulators, um, you know resistive heaters. This kind of off-the-shelf device, uh, but I think there is a much larger uh, gamut of potential experience, tactile experience to recreate if one has control over organic structure in the real time in in real time because if you think about it the uh, every tactile interaction we have with the with the material world is mediated by a uh, by an organic material. Even the surface of the ocean or a desert rock has some adventitiously adsorbed you know, biological species or uh, or volatile organic carbon uh, molecules that have that have bonded. So if we can capture some of that complexity in 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 uh haptic technology then i think we can we can recapitulate a much wider gamut than is currently available with off the shelf materials in in the field of soft robotics there to recreate tactile sensations requires things like pressure sensors temperature sensors and so on and i think that the community has a pretty good handle on those types of systems because there are so many you know capacitive tactile sensors and so forth in the literature that are also stretchable and so forth i think one area where um, where the field of of stretchable electronic materials uh, can make a contribution is to give robots the sense of kinesthesia and proprioception that is to design types of of flexible, stretchable sensors that behave like the mechanosensory neurons in the musculoskeletal system in a biological system that convey information about positioning and force and and so on. And I think that's a, It strikes me that that's a, a little bit less developed in the soft robotics field than the uh, than the tactile sensing.
0: Yeah. So if I ask you what do you think the biggest technological roadblocks. Maybe in short term and a long term for soft robotics field.
1: So yeah, as as a uh, as an organic materials chemist, um, I, I you know you have you have, I have one tool and, and this is this is my uh, this is my 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 nail. The one tool is a hammer. The um, I I would say that that eliminating viscoelastic effects, improving linearity. Uh, of the materials themselves, that's a, that's a key challenge. I think for a long time there was an idea that you had to untether a soft robot because you know there's always some uh, you know some uh, pneumatics that are kind of off camera that are powering the the device. Um, that's not probably not going to be entirely necessary because I think that. Uh, instantiations of soft robotics that are that are sort of most um, immediately commercially applicable will be integrated into traditionally hard robotic systems where you might have a soft robotic. Uh, appliance that uh, that can be powered on board by the hard components. So I think that's maybe a le- less of a big deal than so I, the the idea of, of, of tethering is uh, or untethering is uh, not as big a deal as some people uh, think it might be, um, and uh, other other challenges. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it there for now.
0: Yeah, I think you said something very interesting, and you may be the first one to say it. You want that to eliminate viscoelastic and make the material linear. I think that's very in- interesting. and um, Thank you for highlighting that. But uh, as your supervisor, Professor George Saitis, he said in the book, that non-linear just can bring opportunities to the material. And I think it's interesting because even for any conductive polymer, it has viscoelastic behavior and it's, it, they have higher angular modulus and at the same time they are soft. So why do you think that we have to omit viscoelastic um, property and make it linear? Why do you think that?
1: Yeah, so far, far be it for me to dispute anything that uh, that George Whiteside said on this uh, on this podcast. Um, but I think we're talking about uh, two, well, two types of, of nonlinearities. There's sort of the useful nonlinearity of, uh, of buckling and snap through effects. And those are actually cases where you can leverage these huge nonlinearities for an effect that you just can't get in a, you know, in a metal slab or a Piece of silicon. Uh, however, there are uh, confounding effects, uh, nonlinearities, um, for uh, and and those have to do with viscous loss in polymeric materials, and also um, you know uh, uh, response times that are short, that are that are longer than one might hope for, uh, and also the fact that uh, the 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 stiffness of the material or the stiffness of a robotic appliance, uh, will not be linearly elastic over presumably much of its usable range. So PDMS will be linear for, you know, at most 10% of its, uh, of its stress strain curve. Um, and, uh, and then all, all bets are off and, and viscoelastic effects are, are quite well known. If, if you take a, um, a penny and you put it on well, well this is, you know, creep. If you, if you take a penny and you have, uh, you know, in the United States, Abraham Lincoln's head on it and you put it on the PDMS and a day later you take the penny off that impression will be in the PDMS for for days, you know, in the absence of an external, you know, restoring force. So this is a this is a serious problem for conventional silicone uh, elastomers.
0: So if I ask you to which level of the developers of robotics do you think is intelligent or how do you see they have to be intelligent from your perspective?
1: i'm I'm this is this is uh quite quite far beyond my expertise. i I think but but i'll 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 sort of give you my my opinion. The uh, I think obstacle avoidance and uh and and that kind of quasi or apparent awareness of one's environment is uh is a way is is one manifestation of of intelligence on the part of soft robotics that derive from the uh, the material uh, or or a, a simple um, a simple combination of materials or materials based devices like the use of optical wave guiding and so forth in uh, in soft robotic appendages you know impart some degree of uh, of 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 intelligence or situational awareness, I think the vast majority of the 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 heavy lifting in intelligent soft robotic systems comes from integrated circuits, and it will still be that way for the for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine. Uh, it's hard to to imagine forming something like a synapse in a. Uh, in an organic structure, but of course, biological systems provide the proof of concept, and there are a lot of forms of uh, of intelligence in soft biological systems that actually don't involve the nervous system. Uh, so, in one example, for uh, is the way in which shear stress in the endothelium in the interior of blood vessels produces uh, metabolites. Uh, like carbon monoxide, or I'm sorry, um, uh, nitrous oxide, not not carbon monoxide, that uh, travels down, downstream and then signals other molecules in the vasculature to sort of release their, their tone. And that is a way of regulating blood pressure without involving the nervous system. And one could envision ways in which sensing and actuation in material-based systems are coupled in a way to give something to give the uh, some rudimentary intelligence to the system in a way that circumvents the need for integrated circuits. And I think that is a, a really important area of, of research.
0: Um, I'm curious to ask you this question, because we see also for there's a trade off between the mechanical performance and response time, taking account the morphology jobs of soft robotics. So for example, if we have a smaller sickness, you will have lower force, but fast response, and vice versa is true. How do you see these trade-offs? And how can we have a system that have fast response and higher mechanical performance at the same time?
1: (laughs) That is is the, the key question. And in my own research, we have a similar problem. What we are trying to do is improve the mechanical behavior of semiconducting polymers. And a semiconducting polymer is a polymer in which every other bond between carbon atoms is a double bond. And this bonding arrangement permits the uh, you know, more or less free-flowing of electrons of, along the, the backbone um, under the appropriate stimuli or doping level, or you know there are many ways to do it. The problem is the types of molecular structural motifs that give rise to semiconducting behavior are also anathema to mechanical response which is a big problem because this whole field is designed for or, or is is looking to 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 a day in which we have foldable oled displays and biosensors that are skin conformable and uh, and solar cells that can be uh, that can be stepped on and and printed in a roll to roll manner. So it's it's a big it's a big problem. And for much and this is actually the problem on which I I sort of started my independent research career. And most of our solutions at the beginning were were dedicated to uh, or had the character of finding the razor's edge. So how much compliance is too much before you lose a useful before you lose a useful level of electronic performance, and there was only there were only a few cases in the literature, and our lab had had one of these uh, these discoveries where it was legitimately possible to achieve the best of both worlds, and in this case, it was a chemical innovation where we had a semiconducting segment of a polymer and then, con- then um, covalently bonded a polyester segment uh, in kind of a, a multi-block, uh, uh, or we called it blocky copolymer. Uh, and what happened was that the more polyester, stretchable polyester you added to the system, the more, not only the more stretchable it got, but the more uh, the 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 better semiconducting properties, the higher the charge carrier mobilities were in the material. And this was a, a completely non-zero-sum uh, you know, interaction, and it had to do with the uh, level of phase separation that we were inducing by adding more and more of the uh, weight fraction of the insulator. It actually drove the formation of these fibrillar aggregates of the semiconducting material that actually allowed it to form a percolated network that wasn't possible in the case where you had a much smaller loading fraction. So I, I, I can't I, I can't solve the the elastomer problem uh, off the off the top of my head as it concerns uh, soft robotics. But I think the the take home is that you have two approaches. One, you can find the 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 razor's edge, the sort of frontier area where, one property does not uh, optimizing one property does not catastrophically destroy the other property or you can look for ways of of achieving the best of both worlds through the judicious use of, uh, of polymer physics and chemistry uh, to create materials that, uh, that, that respond uh, with orthogonal processes. The one, one final comment is that in that case, it's relatively a simple matter because you have an electronic property on one hand, and a mechanical property in the other. However, in soft actuators, it strikes me as a more difficult problem because you're trying to optimize two problems that are fundamentally two properties that are fundamentally mechanical. That is, uh, force generation and uh, and and modulus.
0: I'm curious to ask you to which level do you think descriptive model for smart material in general is really helpful or not, because we see maybe sometimes we see modeling is not appreciated and maybe not really capturing what happened in the real physics in the material. And I'm asking this question because you had something interesting about the previous question and answer. But when you go to the modeling scales, you're more interested in micro scales though, microscopic scales and in soft robots, more concerned about the continuum level. So do you think we can, because it's really maybe a gap or maybe challenge if we wanted to oh, apply control later on, do you think we can combine the micro scale modeling with continuum scale modeling? Or is this challenging? Because it's still a gap. I don't know what you think about that.
1: This is a huge challenge and I'm, I'm not a computational scientist, but I do have uh, computational collaborators and colleagues. It strikes me that the, that the, the, the problem is one of parameterization, of the continuum scale models with an accurately parameterized molecular model. And molecular modeling in the design of soft materials is actually quite a bit farther behind molecular scale modeling of hard materials for energy storage and conversion, for example. Um, we're, we're not yet at the point where we plug in some parameters that we want or, or use, uh, AI algorithms to you know, plug in some mechanical properties we want, and then the the algorithm spits out the properties or spits out the structure of a polymer along with its molecular weight, uh, tacticity, um, you know, uh, dispersity index, and so forth that you would need to get those properties, uh, and and only that way could you use the modeling to to uh, to you know, completely in silico parameterize the continuum model. I mean, of course, you can you can parameterize a continuum model using uh, empirical data. uh, And, you know, I'm sure to the extent that that's uh, that that's, that's, you know, doable, people are doing it. It's it's not it's not not my area, Um, but it, it Modeling certainly will be uh, will be part of the solution for materials design. Um, I think it would it's it's um, I think it's a ripe area of of research to uh, to use um, machine learning to to um, uh, design polymers. I mean it's a it's a really hard problem, um, but I think that there's an, a major opportunity there. And then I think the Uh, Continuum scale modeling would uh, would follow once we have a better understanding of the mechanical properties of the of the materials on the uh, on the molecular scale.
0: I think it's very interesting when you say that for designing polymer. Do you think it's about generative design by machine learning? What could other opportunities do you think could be helpful in designing uh, smart material by machine learning?
1: I think I think I think a, a closer collaboration between synthetic uh, polymer chemists and mechanics-oriented scientists would uh, in, you know, of course this, this exists in, in industry. I would say that it's underdeveloped in academia uh, where you're designing a, um, a material on the molecular scale to achieve some continuum uh some continuum output some level of adhesion or uh or response time in the case of robotics i think that's those there are historical accidents in the way that chemistry departments and material science departments and mechanical engineering departments are separated on campus. You know, at UC San Diego, it's a 15 minute walk from the engineering school to the chemistry department. And I think that's uh, that's a shame because there's a lot that we can learn from each other, and it really arises from, you know, all accidents of history, even though there is consilience between these fields. You know, we all know it, but we're not in charge of each other's promotion and tenure. And then that actually dribbles down all the way to what science can actually be done. You know, I would love it for, um, you know, I, I would love it for for continuum mechanics uh, folks and, and, uh, and polymer chemists to talk more often than it appears they, they do in academia.
0: I'm curious to ask you, this may be related here, how we can make sure we have inclusive culture around competitive ideas. Since we know the funding to have a, to secure funding grant, there is a com- speed competition in academia in general. So how we can make sure that we have inclusive culture while we have competitive ideas.
1: The I would say that the funding environment in the U.S. and its recept uh, its uh, receptivity to collaborative projects uh, is quite good uh, compared to um, my understanding of how things used to be. Um, sure, there are still uh, institutes at the National Institutes of Health that are responsible for the funding decisions, but it's actually quite common for them to uh, to, to co-sponsor a project. Um, I think the same is true with the National Science Foundation. Um, the, you know, the best collaborative projects are the ones that arise from a, a, a bottom-up, um, a, a bottom-up meeting of graduate students at a, at a coffee shop or something, and then they involve their, their, professors later, and then seek, uh, seek funding. Um, the, the, uh, I think it's it's the university campus, the the campus architecture, the administrative structure itself um, that are that are more barriers than funding at this point. I think program managers like to see interdisciplinary proposals um, and then there's another institutional cultural barrier. And that is um, we don't publish in the same places <laughs> as each other. And even uh, the. Document types that are considered acceptable for promotion are not the same across disciplines. Let me give you an example. Um, IEEE has a uh, has is the host of essentially all of the haptics conferences in the world, and the in an academic electrical or mechanical engineer has a publishes a, a competitive conference paper it gets accepted that goes on their cv however in the material science and chemistry communities we have mrs and in america we have acs and the conference papers or published abstracts in those organizations are not are not used as you get no credit for those. Uh, you know, it's, it's much less than a paper. So you can't survive as an academic on conference abstracts from MRS in the same way that you can uh, that you can be promoted um, with a conference paper in, I, in an IEEE conference, which is a more substantial publication uh, than an ACS or MRS abstract. The, the way that this becomes a problem is that if somebody is trying to enter the field, for example, of haptics from the outside, how are we going to publish in that community? And this is this is a big problem because I wouldn't get credit for a I wouldn't get the appropriate credit for a conference paper published in, in IEEE proceedings by my tenure and promotion package reviewers who are chemists and material scientists who don't have an equivalent. Uh, don't place an equivalent value on conference publications. So, this is a way in which institutional inertia um, uh, impedes uh, in- inclusion in the scientific sense.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. So, if I ask you um, how you can ensure the developed project within your lab, you and your team, is going to be beneficial to the community or humanity as a well. whole. How do you make sure it's happening? What metrics do you set to make sure that meeting your end goals for a serving community?
1: That is is as important as it is uh difficult uh to uh, to address. I think that instilling the instilling it, well first of all the laboratory should have a mission and values and convey that mission and those values to students whenever possible um i think that there is a you know the 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 wrong way to do research is to treat it as a uh, the wrong way to 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 uh, to treat a PhD program is like a vocational degree, where a student comes in and turns a crank for four to six years, learns how to use an instrument, but then doesn't really know what its societal implications are going to be afterwards, uh, and uh, and and maybe doesn't maybe they're given the project so they don't really develop a, a good. Uh, a good sense of, of project selection and, and how to actually create knowledge. So um, I think it's important that, uh, that serving, serving society um, making good use of taxpayer dollars to uh, educate students and create knowledge at the same time, sort of as a byproduct, picking the best projects we can that uh, serve as vehicles to training students. These are these are uh, important values to have in an academic research group. Um, in terms of downstream measurement of our societal impact, there are some uh, quantitative metrics like if there's a you know technology that's licensed and and you know you're you're judging that the company that is licensing the technology or that that you uh maybe you started is is having a positive societal impact you know that's one way to to view it um it's it's a hard question everybody has uh, slightly different values for example uh you know human machine interfaces versus energy versus healthcare uh it's 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 a tough one but i think it starts with having the right uh with, with having a value system uh in place uh in a research group and conveying it to the students
0: yeah i agree that. so we're closed and we have just three questions do you think ego is important for the researcher
1: ego in, there are two ways in which one conceives of the word ego. At least that I conceive of the word ego. One is synonymous with arrogance, and the other is synonymous with the sense of self and uh, and and ownership of one's ideas and and consciousness. And I think that the the sort of of um, uh, popular definition of the word ego is synonymous with arrogance I I don't think that that uh, that's really you know important in I mean well it may be important for for some people but the less of that there is the less competitive uh the less sort of cutthroat uh competitive spirit there is the the better um I think that uh that you know we're not um scientists are, are living in a community. We are not in a, in a, in a monastery, uh, on a hill somewhere. So we sort of derive some energy from a sense of, con- of, of, um, competition and, and being, um, and being the first to do something. I think that's uh, an important motivating factor, um, but not in a, uh, not a, not an arrogant way, if that makes sense. I think I think one can be competitive but still have empathy for one's uh, for the other people in one's community. I think the 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 more subtle definition of just the sense of self and ownership, I think that is incredibly important for any creative act. Um, the idea that as a researcher, you're building, uh, equity in your career in the form of inventions and publications and knowledge created and students trained. I think that's very important for anyone that goes into research or any creative endeavor. And I, I would hate to think what would happen to the scientific enterprise if you took that uh, that sense of of ownership and and uh, an agency and uh, away from scientists. It's a bit like. Uh, if, you, if you take away somebody's, um, you know, the gene for somebody's pachinian corpuscle in their, their fingers, you know, they don't, they don't die, but they have a, a severely reduced uh, uh, experience and may have to just uh, navigate life some other way. So it'd be a dangerous experiment. I, I, I'm not sure I wouldn't want, want to see the result. And
0: that's important, yeah. And if I ask you what is the most important quality you have gained while you working in academia? and something you have to maintain in your journey as well.
1: Before I started my independent position, I had the perhaps misconception that every interaction I had or every paper I wrote or every grant I wrote had to have the primary goal of getting the money or sounding smart or getting the getting the paper or show, showing the world how good my idea is or, or was. And lately I have taken another tack and uh, there I think if if one can if one if one creates the um, if one has the goal instead of delighting the reader or the audience and creating, Uh, creating a sense of satisfaction or a sense of feeling smart in one's uh, conversational partner or reader or viewer on YouTube or in the classroom, then all the good stuff will flow from there. And it has the advantage, such a mindset has the advantage, that you can be successful every time even if you don't get the grant, or if the paper gets rejected, if the goal is to uh, is to delight the audience, to instruct the audience, to improve their uh, their uh, well being, the uh, you know Im- increase the level of intelligence in a uh, in as the result of a of a conversation for both people, um, then I think that's a um, that's that's a much more uh, satisfying goal as someone who is involved in, uh, in learning and research than just getting the grant or getting the paper accepted. I think those will be byproducts if the, if the other person is delighted because they, they feel smarter after having read the grant or having uh, you know watched the, the video or listened to the podcast.
0: I think that's very important and powerful message. I thank you for that. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was life-changing for you?
1: I think the best advice is probably some advice I I didn't take. <laughs> and um, maybe the, I was told by, by both my uh, PhD advisor, George Whitesides and my uh, postdoc advisor, Shannon Bao, uh, not to ramp up too quickly because, You're going to have too many students uh, early if you hire a lot of students out of of the gate and not have enough funding to pay for them, and then you'll have a lot of sleepless nights. Uh, And I probably ignored that advice, and perhaps to my detriment, but these are the kinds of things that you have to... And and this is, incidentally, the advice that I I give (laughs) my younger colleagues as well, uh, but I think perhaps better advice would be it's okay if you have to learn things the hard way everybody has to learn things the hard way but don't beat yourself up for it the you can you can listen to advice and it maybe moves the needle in your own thinking 5% but making a mistake moves the needle 99% of the way uh and that the knowledge and wisdom that one gets from the actual experience of failure is much more important than the the advice itself. So I would re, I would I'll, I'll revise my my advice uh, by by saying that uh, that that the, the the best thing is to uh, is to to accept that uh, that failure and and rejection is the only way to to really uh, change your behavior.
0: I can't agree more with this advice. I think that's something everyone has to learn. Thank you for that. I would like to thank you for your time. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Me as well. Thank you, Marwan.